We hear this morning from the gospel according to John in chapter 3. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born with, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can we enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you were, must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered to him, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, it is a joy to be with you in worship. And for those of you streaming or who will watch later on demand, blessings to you. And we hope to see you again here in the sanctuary at Peachtree Christian Church in not too long a time. Uh, a few words before we begin about the dreaded coronavirus that we've been talking about and hearing about on the news. I feel as though it's my duty as a leader of a community to speak aloud about it, to let you know that we are taking precaution. I'm not easily giving over to conspiracy theories, and I'm also not easily pushed to panic, but I do think it prudent to listen to people who are expert in the field. And thankfully, here in Atlanta, we are near and uh, around many experts of viral diseases. And so we're listening as a congregation to what the CDC, the city, and the World Health Organization is calling and challenging us to do. We're in phase one, which means that we're reminding you to wash your hands. We have hand sanitizing units all over the building. Please make sure you're washing them well. Be careful not to shake hands at this time. Just be cautious and be wise. Friends, we are people of faith and believe that God is in control, even over the most terrifying of uh, pandemics. But we're also called to be people of faithful rationality, which means that we're all not going to do silly things for the sake of faith. We will do the next right thing. 
And that means sometimes listening to those in the know and following suit. Probably next Sunday we'll receive communion differently uh, with individual communion cups and bread. Basically, we're following the news and the CDC well and trying to walk each step uh, of the way to be safe. So we are taking extra precautions as we clean the building. Please know that. That's happening Monday through Friday. But we encourage you, if you are a person who feels ill, please stay home. You can stream the service or you can watch it on demand later in the week. Not just the sermon. You can watch the entire service. Also, if you're a person who feels as though your health is compromised, you have an, uh, an underlying respiratory problem, or maybe you're of a certain age and you're, you're worried, well, we, we also care for you and wish for you maybe to stay home and stream with us as well. Just be on the lookout for yourself that you're okay and that others are okay. And we'll get through this together, won't we? Okay, friends, that's not going to do for me today. <laughs> do I need to put on my glasses to appear authoritative? We're going to get through this together, aren't we? I saw some nerds out there when we passed the peace. Some people were like, peace be with you. They were the holy ones. And then some of you were like, peace be with you. Well, peace be with you, whatever it is. Before we pray and think about this text, I want to say to you, we're looking at a text that's perhaps one of the most commonly quoted and read texts of the Bible in our country. Therefore, I think people feel as though they have a pretty good handle on it, and you might presume that you know what I'm going to say to you. But I do feel the second week of Lent, it's my challenge to work with the Spirit in expanding all of our consciousness of what God might mean in this passage, because it certainly means more than meets the eye. So take a moment of breathing to open your mind and heart to what the Spirit would have to say, and then we'll pray. Just take a moment and get a few deep breaths. Creator God, we are thankful for the life that you have given us. We confess that there are many ways that we have not handled that gift very well. We have been wayward, unwise. Indeed, we have been sinful. We, as the human race, have led all of creation further away from your divine embrace. Yet, God, it is the deepest confession of our faith that you sent your Son Christ into our midst to reconcile us unto yourself and to renew all creation to give us a desire for your ways, your kingdom ways, and not the ways of our own selfish hearts. And God, we also believe and confess as a community that you've sent your Holy Spirit, our guide and counselor and friend, to lead us into becoming a community of care, a community of care encompassing all of your creation. God, send forth your spirit freshly in this hour for you, and I know that without you, I can do nothing. We ask that your spirit take these words that we think we know well, put them in our hearts in ways that would transform us and renew us and expand us and draw us ever more deeply into your divine embrace. It is in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray and God's people say together, Amen. 
I had a friend invite me over to his house once. He lived around the corner in my neighborhood. He said he had something, quote, cool to show me. I showed up at his house. I went in without knocking as I was wont to do. And I went to his bedroom to find him, his brothers and sisters, his mom, his dad, and a few other friends from the neighborhood standing in a semicircle and looking at the wall very intently. He told me to take a look. I saw a framed poster. It was fuzzy, pixelated. Maybe it was even abstract. He said, stare at it. So like everyone else, I stared at this poster. And then I started here to hear some of the people in our little crowd say, ooh, that's so cool, I see it. It was one of those illusion posters. If you look at it a certain way for a certain length of time, out of the pixelation came objects, I, I guess. Because I never saw a cotton-picking thing. In that whole trend of illusion posters, I never once saw a thing. And I guess I, I can't see it. I said, I can't see it. The world is like that. There are some people who have an easier time of seeing things. They are the ones who often come alongside those who have a more difficult time seeing and help them along the way. My friend came over to me and put his arm around my shoulder and said, relax your eyes. Now, intensify your focus. Now, relax them. He was trying to help me see the illusion, though I couldn't. Nicodemus Nicodemus is a character who saw things. He saw something in the figure of Jesus. He's a Jewish leader, a Pharisee, and he sees in Jesus more than just a miracle worker or even a sideshow magician. No, Nicodemus sees Jesus and wants to speak to him. We have to admit that he was probably fearful in speaking to him. That's why he, he met Christ under the cover of darkness, but he saw in the actions of Jesus something that indicated that this man had come from God. Hence, Nicodemus sees Jesus as someone who sees the world and its drama more deeply than most people. You see, Jesus sees the world from the perspective of the above, from the point of view of heaven, from the point of view of God. In the conversation, it becomes the task of Jesus to help Nicodemus see things even better. He tells Nicodemus that he must be born from above. Now, I trust that when Reverend Chambers read the text this morning, you probably already inserted the sentence in your head, you must be born again. It's interesting in the history of translation from the Scriptures in their original languages to English that being born again was often the way this word was translated, but most properly, this word should be translated born from above. But those of you who have identified with the language of being born again, never fear. That theme is elsewhere, certainly in the Petrine epistles. Petrine epistles, that's a $10 word for saying the epistles with St. Peter's name on them. And also, don't worry that you have to go to Peter because in my estimation, being born from above and born again is actually a very similar thing here. It means that you must receive new life new sight 
a new mind, a new spirit, a renewal in your heart, and it must come from God. You must have renewal in your being. Nicodemus misunderstands, and he toys with the question and says, how can we who are fully grown be reborn? And he goes through the um, indecency of thinking of mammalian and natural birth, and Jesus lets him know he's missing the point. No, what Jesus is talking about has been called by the great 19th century Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard as a teleological suspension. Kierkegaard mused that that's how ethics exist, teleologically suspended. What does that mean? Let's think about it this way. Most human life, most culture lives in this universal sort of understanding of morality and ethics. We tend to think of morality and ethics as the foundation that we stand on, that that strong structure beneath our feet. We can build our life upon it. But for the religious, for the theological, for the spiritual-minded person, All ethics are teleologically suspended. That means they have their source and origin in that which is beyond. For Kierkegaard, it's the religious sphere of life. That's why when religious people follow their faith so closely, it looks bizarre to people. For most of us who live in the world of just the ethical and moral, we can't comprehend how it looks easy for a woman of faith to forgive the murderer of her daughter. That strikes us as absurd. But when you take your cues from that which is above the universal, from from the religious, from when what God gives as being greater than what man thinks of, well, then you have the starting point of real faith. I know it's complicated and philosophical what I'm talking about, but you know what this looks like from architecture and engineering. I don't pretend to know much about those areas, but I do know that my house has a foundation, and that foundation is below the house, and it tethers my house to the earth. I'm told if you don't have a good one of those, it's a bad deal. One time I was driving over a bridge, And I found out it was a suspension bridge. Have you ever been on a suspension bridge? It's interesting if you're driving along one or walking along one, the foundation that you have is not that which is below your tires or feet. The foundation of such a bridge is that which is above you. Sometimes from the car you can't even see it. That's what this is like. You must be born from that which is beyond your imagination. You must be born from above. You must receive life from on high. Your foundation is no longer a series of principles and values and ethics and culture that you stand upon. Rather, all that you stand on comes from that which is above, sometimes that which you cannot even see. But that's where the source of your life comes from. My friends, being born from above is a conversion not simply of the mind, but of the heart, as Professor Sellier says, of our inner theater and our outer theater. It's the internal and the external combined. Have you ever met somebody who is in recovery? I met a man once who was in recovery from a heroin addiction. 
and I talked to him about it. I am fascinated by people who are in recovery, and I'm fascinated by the 12 steps. I've been studying them these past two weeks. If you have never read the 12 steps, go read them. They're fascinating. Father Richard Rohr, Franciscan spirituality writer, says that they are America's most enduring legacy and gift to the world of spirituality. He may be right. At any rate, he was telling me about what life is like on heroin. He told me he neglected his children. He cut ties with his father and mother, that he was a bad brother and a user and abuser of all those around. I said, how did it feel to neglect your children? And he said, I don't know. He said, when I was on my heroin brain, that's what he called it, his heroin brain, he said that his view was about this big, and his brain just kept saying, get more, get more, get more. And when he could hear him say, say I need more heroin, he didn't hear his children cry. He couldn't hear or be bothered by his children's needs. He said all he could hear was heroin brain, heroin brain, heroin brain. He told me that he could not even assess his life until he began the journey of those 12 steps of making amends, of making space between him and the addiction to actually take stock of life. He talked about those 12 steps as being a conversion, a journey of a completely new approach to life. And then he said this, he said, I couldn't be in a good relationship until I was clean and sober. It was a conversion for him. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that we must be born from above. There must be a conversion, a change of our mind and heart and will and body before God. The point. The point is that Jesus is teaching what it takes to receive new life. It must be received as a gift from God. It's not something that you can merit it's not something that you can self-help into, and it's certainly not something you're entitled to. You receive it as gift, and you let it change you from the inside outward. When I think of that, I'm reminded of one of my favorite theological lines in all the works of theology I've ever read. It's from St. Irenaeus of Lyon in his book Against the Heresies. St. Irenaeus' teacher and discipler was Polycarp. Polycarp's teacher and discipler was St. John, the beloved, the disciple who walked with Jesus, the one who wrote these words. St. Irenaeus is close to John. He's also close to Jesus. Here's what he says. For the glory of God is a human being fully alive. I want you to remember it, so say it with me. For the glory of God is a human being fully alive. One more time. For the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Human beings are not fully alive until they received grace from above, until they've been touched by God, until the process of renewal and recreation has touched them from their innermost being. Now, if we follow our text logically, we're getting to the big one. Three little numbers and a colon. A verse that's citation has been emblazed and put on buildings and billboards and helmets of football players. John 3.16. 
we assume it to be some, some sort of summary of all things. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I'm sad to say we read that as American romantics. We read that this way. For God so loved you, he just loved you so much that he gave his son. It's not a good reading. A better reading is God loved the world in this way. This is how God loved the world, that he would give his son so that the world could be healed, so that you could be healed, so that you could have new life. That's, that's a more judicious reading. It's not affection. It's the manner which, in which way God has loved. For God loved the world in this manner that he would send his son for the salvation of the world. But have you ever wondered about that word world in this passage? What does St. John mean by world? You know, St. John uses the word world different ways in the gospel. It's actually complicated. You need to do a lot of research to find out probably what he means by it. He uses it positively and he uses it negatively. What does he mean by the word world? Does St. John mean earth, as in earth is a world in space, not far or far away from other possible worlds? Does St. John mean it in the negative sense, like world equals um, the bad of society? You know that old phrase, well, he's living a worldly life, or maybe I'm in the world but not of it? Is that what John means? Maybe John just means everybody, the collective human race by world. Or as I suggest for you for this morning, the second week of Lent, maybe the word world could mean the whole creation and everything in it. The Greek word used here is cosmos, after all. For God so loved the cosmos. Have you ever thought that this passage might mean a bit more than just your salvation and mine? Maybe its purview includes your salvation and mine, but includes more. I'm reminded of the title of that old book. Salvation means creation healed. I think it might mean more. In no other gospel than in John's gospel do we get a greater sense of the, of the cosmic nature of Christ and cosmic redemption. St. John has it in droves. Think about the prologue, the very beginning of John's gospel. The word word is used to describe Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was with God, and the word was with God at the beginning of creation. All things are made through and by and for the word. It's as if Jesus as the word, the reason, the meaning of God is the filter by which all things are created. In some sense, the entire cosmos has the divine fingerprints all over it. And then there's this whole idea that God scoops up humanity in the divine person and takes on humanity 
And if you know anything about the human creature, you are a microcosm of all creation. God takes on the stuff of life and earth by taking on the nature of human form in Jesus Christ. Oh, and then there is this wonderful bit in John's gospel about Jesus saying, I am the bread and I am the wine. That's a theological thing you need to sort through. Because Jesus uses similes and metaphors. He could have said, I'm like bread and I'm like wine. No, he says, I am these things. There's an identification of the divine here with materiality. It ought to blow your mind. Oh, and then there's the turning of water into wine at that wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, almost certainly symbolizing the newness of all things starting because of the work of Jesus. Let me suggest that God loves all of creation, the cosmos, in such a way that Jesus gave his life to heal all of its wounds and cracks, beginning first with the cracks of the human heart. But make no mistake, including the cracks of every corner in our cosmos. Have you ever heard of Jill Tarter? She's a scientist who works for SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. She's actually the one they based Jodie Foster's character off of in the movie Contact, in the book Contact. Don't laugh at me. I'm not trying to talk about spacemen here. But here's the thing. She, as a scientist, is trying to search to see if there is technology of another kind out in space. We already know that there's other life, right? We already know that there is microorganisms uh, and water found elsewhere, but, but is there intelligent life? Well, how would you know? You would know by technology. So she's been looking for decades. She said she's only looked at a very small corner of things because it's that big. Well, you don't have to find her work interesting as I do. I find it endlessly fascinating. Uh, but I find this the most fascinating. She says this phrase. She says, it takes a cosmos to create a human. It takes a cosmos to create a human. What does she mean? Well, scientifically, she subscribes to one theory amongst many about the beginning of the universe, but we know that it's expanding. And there are exploding stars and supernovas, and this all gives matter and energy to other things. Scientists believe, for instance, that an asteroid hit Earth sometime, some period ago, and material came out of Earth and somehow formed our moon. Oh, it's incredibly interesting and fascinating stuff. But here's something that's fascinating for you. You, human being, are made up of the stuff of the stars. There's nothing in you that is not in every other part of the universe. As Carl Sagan would say, there is stardust even in your veins. St. Maximus the Confessor writes well before Carl Sagan that humans are a microcosm of creation. And this shouldn't shock or bother any of you. Because we can flip to Genesis chapter 2 where we have an analog story where God is in his garden as the great divine gardener and he wants humans to garden on his behalf. And so he takes the earth and he pulls it together. In Hebrew, this word is adamah. He pulls all this adamah together and then he blows into it, breath, spirit. And this is the human adam. 
My brother-in-law is named Adam, and I just call him dirt whenever I want because that's what it means, from the dirt. Oh, there are English tells too. Do you know hummus is the soil of life, and it's the same root word as the human and the same root word as humility, which probably teaches us how we should behave. Oh, friends, she might be onto something. It takes the cosmos to produce a human, but I'm here to theologically respond and say this, based on John 3:16 and 17, it takes a human, the human, a divine human, to restore the cosmos. It might take the cosmos to make a human, but it takes the human to remake the cosmos. And in verse 17, God did not send his son in the world into the cosmos to condemn it, but to save it, to heal it, to remake it, to restore it, to renew it. At the beginning, we talked about those who have the ability to see, and there are others who don't. If you are a Christian, you are called to see to go into this world and see it anew with new eyes, with fresh eyes, with eyes open to the fact that God's grace is always breaking in to renew that which is broken. The world, the cosmos, does not equal an inert natural stage for your drama with the divine. No, no, it's much more than that. It's part of the divine drama. It's being renewed as you and I are being renewed. It takes the human Christ to renew the cosmos. And here's the thing for you. You and I are called the body of Christ. So it's incumbent upon us to bring the peace of God that we've received when we were born from above to bring it where we go, to bring renewal and new birth to other relationships and to broken hearts and to other areas where our world is cracked. Lent, volume two, may you be a people who bring peace wherever you go, just like Christ brought peace wherever Christ went. I bless you in his holy name.